Hello, welcome to Volume 4 of the Movie Club Podcast. Uh, this is a kind of a monthly show. It's sort of like a book club, um, but where we dive into films, obviously. And the films that we review and talk about are voted on by you, the listeners. And they're usually kind of older films, sort of off the beaten path. But, uh, you know, anything is uh, is a go here at, at uh, movieclubpodcast.com. Um so, being that this is a uh, club, and we've all seen the movie, obviously, and we assume that the listeners seen the movie, it is full of spoilers. Uh, the ending and anything, any plot details at all, we go into them pretty, um, pretty heavily, so just be so advised of that. Um, today's show is M. Night Shyamalan's Lady in the Water, and also Michael Haneke's Funny Games, the original version from 1997. So... Um, I guess first we'll uh, just sort of introduce everybody. I'm Andrew James from Movie Patron and also uh, Row3.com. That's your cue, guys. <laughs> we can't see you. <laughs> uh, I'm Kurt Halfyard, also from Row3 and uh, TwitchFilm.net as well. I am JW. I'm from uh, Film Junk and the Documentary Blog. And I am Sean Jay, and I am also from the Film Junk website and podcast. And I'm Marina from Rogue 3. And uh, if you couldn't tell there, we're in three different groups here spread all across the continent. So that's why uh, there might be some weird lags and stuff in there. But uh, so... Yeah, like I said, we're going to do Lady in the Water and Funny Games. We didn't really talk about it. Do you guys uh, have a preference on which one we, we talk about first? Well, I was thinking maybe Lady in the Water, considering uh, Jay and Kurt just watched it, like, less than, what, an hour ago? Less than 15 minutes. Uh, so, um... Well, that's, that's cool. We can do that first. So let me ask really quickly. When you guys watched it together, was there any discussion going on during the movie at all? Or were you just all, were you saving it? Dead silence. <laughs> Total <laughs> awkward <laughs> silence. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, Lady in the Water is uh, the latest. Well, is it the latest by M. Night Shyamalan? He's done The until Village. Until the and, happening. All right, until the happening. And, uh, boy, does anyone want to sort of try and just set the movie up uh, in in brief? I know that's probably difficult in brief, but. If anyone wants to take a stab at just sort of setting up the well, movie, I'm, I can kind of go. I guess like I I know um, obviously Shyamalan known for his twist endings and whatnot, and uh, the one before this one was The Village, which is kind of when people started to. I think a lot of people were disappointed with that one. Lady in the Water comes out, um, billed as I guess a fairy tale, uh, actually a bedtime story, I believe that he told to his children. That's what it says on the back of the DVD cover, anyway. I know some people were joking that it was reminiscent of Splash because, of course, it does involve a sea nymph. Um, and but, Ron Howard. Yes, uh, but uh, kind of a, a strange mix of things for him, and uh, it definitely got a critical drubbing, I think you can say. 
Um, and I actually, I'm, I'm on Metacritic right now. I thought maybe I'd just read out a couple little quotes uh, yeah. just to set this up. Let's see here. Now, one from Nathan Rabin at the Onion AV Club. Shockingly misconceived, poorly executed. Um, now, going down the list here, we also see um, Stephanie Zacharek from Salon.com. Challenges us to believe in the power of myth, but the big challenge here is surviving the tedium of Shyamalan's meandering inventiveness. What's supposed to be fanciful storytelling is really just audience punishment. Salon.com? Yeah. Good site, actually. You think I'm going to follow the opinions <laughs> of a hairdresser? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, Ian Freer at Empire says, There is much pleasure to be had watching a born storyteller juggle more balls than he can ever carry. So that's kind of a positive one. Um, Jay, I think you're the, the one out of the group of us uh, that really like this movie. Yeah, what are you trying to say? Well, I'm trying to <laughs> say you've been criticized in the past for it, and I think you were kind of pushing to do this movie on the uh, on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you... Do you want to give us some thoughts on why this isn't the... Worst disaster? movie in the last <laughs> ten years? Yeah. Well, um, I, I am a lover of magic. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, majesty. No, I, I, I think that this movie, if um, first off, I think it's worth noting that Shyamalan had a lot of bad press when this movie came out, stemming from an incident where I, I don't remember the exact details, but someone from Buena Vista, I think, was trying to get him to change aspects of the script, and he reacted negatively to this, and that reaction was uh written for something and picked up by the interweb bloggers and sort of uh became this story at the time of how M Night Shyamalan is a a dick <clears throat> and uh that followed by the fact that he wrote himself into the film as this uh messiah that you know uh writes something called the cookbook which is going to be this sort of piece of literature that will change the world. So everyone thought, you know, the combination of the two things equaled M. Night Shyamalan, uh, egomaniac, uh, and, you know, gave him a very bad sort of out-of-the-gate uh, impression for everyone for, for Lady in the Water. That would be the one downfall. Well, I'm not, no, not the one downfall. There are a couple downfalls. But the, the major downfall for me was him casting himself, not because he cast himself in the role of the savior of, you know, who writes magic, but his acting isn't that great. Uh, and I, I, there are some points in the movie, I've, this is, was, the, I think, the third time I'd watched it. So there were some things that, you know, I realize are pretty cheesy stuff, like uh, when uh, Paul Giamatti says his uh his children's faces remind him of god or, or something like lines like that are you know pretty bad but the context of all of this for me is in this this sort of ridiculous 
Charlie Kaufman-esque, uh, Spike Jones-esque, even if Shyamalan wasn't necessarily driving at that, I could see a, a name on this, although I will say it would be a better film, and it would not have the uh, the cheesiness that is kind of surrounding everything, but for me, it was the banality of two guys, you know, drinking coffee uh, with a, a sea nymph in the shower, talking about these rules of how they're going to get her to meet up with the eagle to send her to the blue world. <laughs> See, but that's exactly it. Like, no, you, no, <laughs> just wait. Okay, you're going somewhere with talking this. about <laughs> it as though they're talking about how to hook up their cable. Like they're just having a conversation. I love in movies when, whether it be horror movies or fantasy or whatever, where there's the general population and under the general population is some small group of people who are dealing with some issue <coughs> that is above anything anyone would ever imagine. Prince of Darkness. That's one thing I love about that movie is what's happening inside that church to like 10 people is basically holding the fate of the entire world when just outside the doors is the real world happening and no one knows you know it's like the when you hear about uh every few years there's like a, a near miss of a, a nuclear holocaust because you know there was a, a, a weather satellite that was mistaken for an incoming missile and you know they almost pressed the button but didn't at the last minute and you don't hear about it but things like that happen it's kind the, of the like sea nymph is the weather satellite and the eagle <laughs> is the nuclear missile it's kind of like chronicles of narnia like a secret world in a wardrobe no it, it's a real <laughs> world with the wardrobe opening up into it. it it's like am i no one is understanding this here <laughs> uh, you, i just sound know. like m night Shyamalan. Not, not just splash but i was thinking more along the lines of cocoon mm -hmm. um in that this supernatural incident it's aliens and cocoon but um brings a sort of collection of obviously artificial screenplay make the audience feel better characters together over the course of the movie. That, that's actually what I found so atrocious about the movie, was that these characters are all screenplay artifacts, and the, and the only reason why they would talk to one another, the only convincing reason I could see why they would talk to one another within the movie is because the screenplay told them so. And uh, But I think he's I aware know. of that. Oh, oh, absolutely. That's why we're, when we were driving over here uh, in the car, we said, well... On one level, I'm really glad we paired this up with Funny Games because various fourth wall breaking in Lady in the Water. Some of it's subtle, like the fact that he's obviously, you know, dumbed down everything to the point where the main character is called Story and the language of the, uh, you know, all the MacGuffins in the movie, the, the narfs and scrunts and everything is so, you know, baby speak or whatever. But then there's Bob Balaban's character who is the uh, functional equivalent of the remote in funny games, which we'll get to later, um, who at one point in the movie talks directly, he practically points right out of the screen and gives this long lecture of what should happen and then M. Knight, rather full of himself, which he is throughout this whole movie, um, you know, aggressively does the opposite of what he just said he was going to do. I, I mean, 
I don't know if it's a make or break scene in the movie, like like the remote scene is in Funny Games, but it was just one thing. I was expecting to like this movie going in. I don't know why I was, but about 15 minutes in, um, there were about 30 things that piled on that really annoyed me. Uh, particularly, all the actors in this film seemed completely out of their depth. I, I, I don't think they knew how to... Like, none of the performances are convincing. Not a single one. And the scene that, that you mentioned... Um, Jay with the shower and the coffee mugs in a in a better film that would have worked for me but M. Knight standing off to the side with his coffee mug looking thoroughly baffled um, or uh, maybe he's baffled because the movie actually got made I don't know but uh, <laughs> it, it just struck all the false notes for me I, I, there was no point I, I just couldn't Maybe I'm too cynical. Maybe I thought the movie was too cynical. I just could not revert to the required childlike state to understand what he was trying to like, or to get on the same wavelength. Well, I'll tell you, I'm pretty cynical, and I hate kids. So, I no, I don't hate kids. Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'd never really reached a childlike thing. I just sat back and enjoyed. To me, them talking about narfs and scrunts and everything was the equivalent of watching uh, a group of kids pretending they were running the White House. Uh, it, it was like watching adults playing kids, um, and it just had this ridiculousness to it, to the point where I didn't really care if the characters were original or... like They, they almost had to be... Uh, stereotypes because you know you were trying to apply these you know the the guild and the um the healer and all of this to these different people and wasn't really looking for anything that was groundbreaking uh character studies or dramas and as far as the acting I will agree with you um especially the the guy we we're talking about who is a, some I think he's a magician and uh he was on night court a couple times his performance is unusually energetic at the end when <laughs> he's telling Paul Giamatti to just try and heal the girl and his head is like uh, a woodpecker like he's got these weird bird like <laughs> movements my biggest beef was with the Chinese exposition department I mean again I think it's intentional on some level it was just tedious like to, to the sort of mock pseudo comedy of this uh, um Chinese uh, woman who who had a Korean sounding name, but the mother had a, was was definitely Chinese. And the the translating that goes on and the goofiness. Hey, I'm at a club. Like it was so. And, and maybe that was the intent. It just didn't have any. It's horrible. Uh, work. It's horrible. Oh, sorry, we should. Uh, what's with uh, what's with the gallery outside of uh, Sean's house? Well, I'm just listening to what you're saying, and I'm grating my teeth because everything you said is right. It's horrible. The that whole thing about how many times does he go back? Oh, can you, can you tell me a little bit more about the story? Or she'll just show up randomly and go, Oh, um, you know, last night after you left, um, my mom told me more of the story. Here's a little bit more for you. And it was so preposterous and. The, the characters, when you were talking about before, um, the acting doesn't bother me. Even the ridiculousness of the story doesn't bother me. It's how far-fetched it is and how all the characters just go with it. Like, he shows up that, at the dude's house. Yeah, but house that's and... what's funny for me. Yeah. Like, I, I find it funny. Whether or not it's supposed to be funny all of the time, but I find this... 
well, to be like it, a, a an unusual, like f- flipped on its head version of ET, where you know you've you've got a guy who's weightlifting with one arm, like <laughs> his, one half of his body is built and one half of his body See, that, is not. I thought that was funny, but like I think you know it seems like he was going for some sort of like. I don't know, like satire or something. Like obviously he's poking fun at conventions and things like this, but the way he did it was so clunky. It was like he thinks he's being so clever by doing this, but it didn't like I don't know. Right. Even worse. Feels, I don't know whether I should respect him or hate him for trying to blend the two most disparate things to be blended, um, childlike and satire. I mean they if there was ever an oil and water tone <laughs> Those two things are. They don't mesh. If it's supposed to be a kid's thing, it just doesn't seem... It looks... It feels like he's really taking the whole thing seriously. It doesn't feel like it's supposed to be funny. It feels like, wow, does he really expect us to go along with this? Or is he he making a satire? Is is it supposed to be funny? And to me, it feels like he thinks it's serious and is trying to be serious, and it's just not. I, I don't. I don't agree. There's a moment where the kid is spouting off this articulate sort of, uh, you know, what they're supposed to do, uh, and you know, he's giving that whole speech of like, you're supposed to take the girl to this area, do this with her, and that. You must hurry. There isn't much time. And you cut to what he's looking at, and it's the cereal boxes. I don't think for one second that that is supposed to be serious. And and I also think that the. Uh, the Chinese expedition exposition, <laughs> exposition that would have been cool <laughs> exposition department. I, I really think that's a subtle fourth wall break, a really subtle fourth wall break, in the sense that um, you know the yeah, it's like it's like Basil exposition in the in uh, the Austin Powers films. You know, I mean, he basically comes in when the screenplay admits. Now, whether you you could make a very, it's a very easy to make the argument that that's pretty lazy storytelling. Uh, and that's pretty. It's a pretty lazy way to get your aims, and we can look at that in the context of funny games after. But yeah, I, I can't imagine either the guy is truly operating on some unique wavelength. Which I don't know. I, I found all of his stories to be too palatable to for him to be some you know crazy genius like uh, I don't know. Um, See, but that's the, I think that's the thing, like, Jay, you mentioned, like, Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones, kind of a little bit loopy, but brilliant at the same time. And Shyamalan, he feels like he's, like, forcing it, you know? And Okay, here, here's a good uh, sort of similar situation. We re- recently reviewed a movie called My Kid Could Paint That, and the movie is about a child who's selling uh, abstract paintings for thousands and thousands of dollars, until there's some sort of uh, questioning whether or not the kid is actually painting it or the father is painting it. Now, for me, the question was, and the obvious question in the movie is, is the painting any less uh, interesting or less worthy or valuable uh, from an artistic point of view if the kid painted it or the father painted it? And, I mean, you could say, yeah, because with the kid painting it, it's kind of like a gimmick, and you're paying for the fact that it was painted by a four-year-old. Those abstract paintings are beautiful as they are. They're just beautiful paintings. 
or if you hate them, you hate them just because they're abstract. That seems to be a situation that you look at Lady in the Water and you say, all that weird quirkiness can't really be quirkiness because it's M. Night Shyamalan and he's serious most of the time. So I'm going to say that all of that is just cheese rather than some sort of like but, quirky brilliance. See, I don't, I don't agree with that because I think it's his own fault for the tone of the movie. I mean, the tone of it is so similar a lot of times to his other movies. There's this dark, ominous score. There's this monster that keeps coming out and like threatening them and it just it feels like it's building to this big ending like all of his movies do and but yet like it's just all people talking about what they're supposed to do and it's not really much happens and i don't know like that's kind of where it fell apart for me like it was just too much of people talking about doing things rather than actually doing them and too much well the self self referentialism kind of just ate itself up. I, I would be I am a hundred times more interested in seeing a fantasy world like of the scrums and whatnot brought the, the into this, this film than seeing another Narnia picture. I would, I would rather watch Lady in the Water 2 than another Narnia picture and I, I at least give him props for taking, you know, whether or not there's just a lot of talking about what they have to do, I found that more interesting than watching, you know, a group of kids shooting magic rocks at a talking lion or or whatever. Um, I thought it was different. It's different. Uh, where you know they, they take a group of characters like this and seriously talk about just completely banal and ridiculous uh, rules. For, for that amount of a movie and try and apply them to, you know, these just people. These are just people that are trying to get together and and help a sea nymph get onto an eagle. I mean, it, it, for me, it's unusual, and it kind of treads the water that, you know, maybe, maybe adaptation treads where it it's just kind of ri- so ridiculous. And even if he meant it to be this movie that touches people and brings people together and is this you know amazing story I don't care I see it for what I see it as which is a a really weird quirky movie Marina I'm just shaking my head Uh, I mean I don't know what to say you know I like the characters I love the first 20 minutes and then it goes downhill from there and the very fact that this bedtime story sucks just makes things worse i'm sorry a narf what the fuck is that i just i couldn't believe it when they called it that i'm like can't you call it something else what the hell is a narf is that part of the satire now if if you want to read that in i think you guys are giving it way too much credit more than it deserves no i'm i'm with you i i totally think that i don't think i think that m night Shyamalan takes this totally Seriously, yes, it's a fantasy. Yes, it's a kid's tale. But I think that, um, you know, fair enough, Jay. If 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 you don't take it that way, that's fine. I I totally think that's cool. But um, where you said he he believes it to be something that's going to touch people and bring pe- people together, and it's this amazing story. I think that's what he thinks it is, and mm-hmm. it's 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 not. I, I, 
I, the, that cereal box scene, I remember seeing that in the theater, and both me and my friend just looked at each other. We were shaking our heads the whole time as, already. And, and when that popped up, we just looked at each other and went, this is like a guy on acid wrote this and thought it was going to be something special. The crossword puzzle guy? Uh, well, let's just grab this random crossword puzzle and... I thought that this was weird that there was sensual and scheme next to each other in a crossword puzzle. So that means we have to have a party. Um, I don't know why it's this particular crossword puzzle, but we have to have a party, and there has to be music there. So we must have to have a band. I mean, it's so beyond preposterous that I, I, I can't get on board with it. It just made me shake my head the whole time. I was just like, what are you thinking, man? I have three films that come to mind, and they're all different films. When I don't think it's wholly unique, although visually it, it looks great. Um, but Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> no, fil- film number one would be uh, something like uh, K-Pax, except uh, the humans seem to know more than the alien, in, in which case, you know, or, or you could... A better, a much better film than K-Pax would be The Fisher King, but for because I don't like Lady in the Water, I'm going to say K-Pax. It also reminded me very much of uh, John Carpenter's Starman, just for that naive innocence when it suits the character. I, it was the, always the issue I had with Starman and with a lot of these alien things. There's a naive innocence when it suits the screenplay, but then when the screenplay's got to kick in, the confused you know, fish out of water, in this case, quite literally, um, all of a sudden, you know, teaches everyone else. And, but the, perhaps the best example of, uh, um, of integrating, you know, sort of some real elements, some fantasy elements, and stewing it together to a very meaningful and emotional story would be Pan's Labyrinth, which, when you're comparing something, if you were to put Pan's Labyrinth and Lady in the Water side by side, you see all the screenwriting problems. You see all the acting problems. You even see the story uh, construction and, and um, uh, you know, just like simple elements of the craft problems that they all jump out at you. Now, I, I can appreciate what Jay says in that viewed from the point of somewhat of a off-his-rock mad genius and, and sort of the, uh, you know, you can appreciate it because it's different, but... I don't know. I, I I think he shoots himself in the foot so many times that any any things that I would argue accidentally it does wrong or unintentionally it does right. Again, it's hard to elucidate the intentions of the filmmaker. But like Jay said, I don't know if it's important whether we elucidate them or not. You just view what's up on screen. Uh, seeing what's up on screen, it just seemed to have loads and loads and loads of problems. And again, if I were to view this completely as a satire, it's really subtle. But I I find it hard to give that kind of credit out. See, I, I think to, to compare, like, say, Pan's Labyrinth, this movie, Lady in the Water, I think, personally, has way too many self-referential moments where I think it's screaming you shouldn't be taking this 100% seriously. Pan's Labyrinth is a different beast because you've got that human drama that is very serious and deals with very real issues. And, and um, whereas I, I really disagree and, and can't take the cereal box moment or the crossword moment or the uh, talks on cell phones about, you know, 
specifically the moment where he says something to the effect of, you know, uh, something regarding the eagle. And he's using these names, like he's uh, pacing in the, the outer, like, hall of the, the hotel or whatever and talking on his cell phone about, you know, the, the eagle and the narf and everything. And it just, it screams to me, this is ridiculous. Like, it, it screams. And another thing that I love in movies like this, and maybe a little bit in Signs as well, and The Mist uh, reminded me a lot of Lady in the Water, is where they throw something completely ridiculous, and you're waiting for them to draw it back and, and say, you know, no, that's not really. Like, in, in The Mist, when the, they're in the back storeroom and these tentacles come out, and you're like, really? Already? Like, the, there's really something out there. And you're waiting for, you know, some sort of, like, you know, character to pop from the other side of the door holding a fake tentacle and be like, got ya, or something. Or in uh, Signs, the whole movie, I was thinking, okay, it's not, it must not really be an alien invasion. It must be some weird, like, explanation. Uh, but it just, no, it's an alien invasion. And in Lady in, in the Water... You know, no, it is a sea nymph. It isn't a giant eagle that's going to come at the end. And it is grass monsters. And I, I like the fact that he just sticks to the fact that it is grass monsters. And it is a giant eagle. Like, you hear about this eagle the whole fucking movie. And it is <laughs> an eagle. And I, I was like, you know what? He's got balls. Good for, on you for sticking, for sticking with that eagle. Because <laughs> I didn't think that anyone would have the guts to have a giant eagle pick up your character yeah, at the Yeah, but end. the flip side to that is, did he stick to the eagle because he really didn't have anything else? And, you know, that's that's a point, too, because, I mean, if it really is a bedtime story that he was telling to his kids, part of the time I was thinking to myself, okay, he was struggling to come up with the script. He's like, oh, I got this story I tell my kids. Let's just see what I can work out of this. And then he just kind of, like, pieces something together. I think that's a and little cynical. I really oh, don't maybe. think that M. Night Shyamalan is like, uh, let's just take this story I tell my kids and throw some shit on it. I I don't think that's. You don't I think, think so? taking the bedtime story thing, it, you know, that's a little too literally. I, I think you know the, that's just a it, kind of. But it actually says it. But it well, I know, case. but you know, it also says that you know, one is a thrill rider. Like you'll you'll see lots of different things on DVD cases. <laughs> Put it this way: when M Knight sits down with his kids for bedtime and tells this story. He, he spends loads and loads of time giving every lurid detail of the slaughter of Bob Balaban, the film critic, in the film. I mean, that's, that was probably the most offensive moment, not, not because I review films, but because the sa I have an issue when um, filmmakers put critics in the film uh, to, for some end, like to, to, to work out their own... Yeah, insecurities yeah. or something like the. Uh, can I? What can was I, it? The Dean Devlin and Ronald Emmerich's uh, Godzilla, where they had the fake Siskel and Ebert in there. <laughs> it just seems that's those were the types of comparisons I was making when I was watching Lady in the Water. It seems so desperate and foolish and goofy. And then curious, Christopher Doyle shoots that sequence like with the up close half eye. Like it's very stylishly shot. This fourth wall break. The very explicit fourth wall break uh, where Bob Bellman has this large speech and it's so cynical and it's so um, 
it just so does not fit with the tone because you know even in his most diluted state he's got I, I imagine he was aiming for some sort of childlike wonderment and to put that level of cynicism in it, it's kind of offensive can I say something really quick um, I'll come back to the uh, Bob Balvan character in a second if you go to amazon.com and search Lady in the Water there's a 64 page hardcover um, illustrated book by M. Night Shyamalan entitled Lady in the Water it's the child book that he wrote for his kids. That so, bastard. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, Marina, did you look at the um, the extras on the DVD at all? No. Cause I he, couldn't be bothered. There is one that you, if you click on extras, he there's a scene where, of him just reading his book, like page oh, for God. page, and they show nice. the Is he reading the book? Shoot me now. Or is he reading the cookbook? <laughs> no, it's his book. So there that, you go. That, and, but and that I, I, actually dovetails. I'll stop talking after this. But that dovetails very nicely with the fact that not only do you put in a character that is clearly like a film critic and and a bad parody of one um, to begin with, and wholesale slaughter just out of filmmaker arbitrariness, you also cast yourself as the Christ-like Messiah. Uh, who who not only you know writes the book that's going to change everything, but is sacrificed for it as well, um, or at least in the vision he will be sacrificed before his out. Um, it just seems, again, if it's satire, I wouldn't argue that it's particularly effective. It may be subtle, um, but if it's earnest, uh, it's kind of scary. I can't handle that level of earnestness. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I kind of. A lot of people point out the fact that he's in the movie, and that's they have a huge problem with that. But I'm glad you brought up the whole critic thing because to me, that was more kind of like you know we talk about how important is the intention of the filmmaker, and maybe you shouldn't even re- be thinking that this is a M Night Shyamalan film. But when he's in it, he's got a film critic that he's poking fun of, all this stuff. Like he wants you to know it's his movie. Like there's no way he doesn't. Mm-hmm. I don't, know how I don't care what he wants, it. though. <laughs> well, but I'm just saying. Oh, fair like, enough. That's that's actually a valid point, though. As soon as the film is out there, as soon as the book is out there, whatever, um, the author, the original author, in a way, is just an expert reader of his own creation. You know, at, at that point. But yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I the the critic and M Night Shyamalan. I don't. Ac- I actually don't have a problem with that. The critic is actually my favorite part of the movie. I think it's funny. I love the scene where um, Paul Giamatti, Cleveland Heap, goes up to him to ask him advice. It's far-fetched, really far-fetched, but it's funny. I like the way he just sort of explains it. I like the part where he gets killed, where he looks, like you said in the beginning, he explains the This is the scene in the movie where there has been previously no nudity, no gore, violence, and no swearing. There's no way that a side character will be killed. He will narrowly escape, and the way he puts it is just... I don't know, it was amusing and funny to me. But you knew immediately as soon as he started talking, and this is where the movie gets rather ineffective, you could almost predict what many of the characters were going to say. Like, as soon as he gave that speech, you know he's going down hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. But, you know, maybe that's some sort of, uh, you know, 
sign that you know he's saying that movies are predictable and we're predicting the movie. I'm telling you, yeah, oh, Shyamalan yeah. is a genius. Yeah, no, 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 that, that, that's very valid because that's what people go into a Shyamalan film. And he, it, that's not the only film reference he makes. He also makes the, the point about um, the romantic comedy and the, uh, um, the uh, kissing in the rain. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Paul Giamatti's character says, well, maybe it's a metaphor for purity and cleansing and right. moving on to something new. And he's like, and then Bob Balaban ultimately reductive and not insightful says no it just sucks yeah. which you know i don't know it, it, it's it, it's not very flattering and it's it, it makes a regardless of his you know media overblown tantrum antics right then and there that's pretty clearly on display in the film and it it, it i think it film more petty well maybe this is some sort of uh, it, it maybe it stems from a constant expectation of twist endings. Well, and this is the thing. Sometimes I I, I see this movie and you know it's like Freddy got fingered, where which I will say would have been a good Cannibal Holocaust. Absolutely, I, I mix. Love, I actually like Freddy got. Fingered. I think we should have that for a future episode. But continue. <laughs> well, and but it's the same kind of thing where it's like comes out, everyone hates it. Everyone's like, this is the worst. But then people who kind of get it or say they get it are like, no, 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 this is like an Andy Kaufman joke making fun of how bad comedies actually are or whatever. And so, like, do we credit the same kind of thing to M. Night Shyamalan? I don't know. No. I, I don't think that M. Night is pulling an Andy Kaufman or is anywhere near that level. I, I just think that... And I hate when people say... You know, you would like this movie if this name was taken off it and this one was put on it, because that's bullshit. But I will cringe as I say that I think some people may appreciate Lady in the Water a lot more if a, a more quirky name was attached to it. And but that doesn't mean that I I think Lady in the Water is perfect and awesome and whatnot. Just I appreciate the oddity that is Lady in the Water and how weird it is and you know there are elements that are bad but um, and, and you know if you did put a, a name like Spike Jones on it it would be a completely different film but I, I guess I just watch it in the light of such films as this like being John Malkovich and everything again nowhere near but that mind frame I don't go into it expecting, you know, a, a Mimsy, the last whatever that movie is, or, you know, some the water horse or something. I go into it thinking this is a weird, you know, kid reading cereal boxes, one-armed muscle man, uh, grass monsters deal that is, you know, ends with an eagle, giant eagle. I... All that being said, and I, and I totally see where you're coming from, uh, I understand that certain way out there movies, like Tom Green's Freddy Got Fingered, have their cult following, and, and there's actually a movement out there that can appreciate that movie. I, I find Lady in the Water may never find that, or, or the audience will be really small, because it's too cynically manipulative, and it's too... 
it just doesn't have any appeal to an art film crowd. It just, it, it, if in its own weird way, it has something about it that is would almost offend every, like existing, film group. So there's really, uh, the chance of it finding even a, any sort of audience. I mean, maybe you could argue that that's a good film that that is so unclassifiable and <laughs> and has no audience. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I I don't foresee Lady in the Water being hailed as any sort of Anything beyond uh, a footnote as um, M. Knight's most batshit insane film. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I actually have like loads of notes here to say, but I guess it would just be pointless. I, um, for me, it's just so far-fetched, and there's too many jump-to-conclusion moments that are just... I, I can't... I couldn't grasp... I. But would you say the Chronicles of Narnia is far-fetched? Well, of course, because there's talking lions and stuff, and that's fine. I, I don't, I see, here's the thing is, I don't mind the story. I don't mind the fact that there's narfs, and there's this lady who needs to be picked up by an eagle, and there's monkeys in the trees that are going to, you know, I, that stuff is actually kind of a cool idea. It's how we get there that's horrible. The, the, the leaps in bounds of logic that we have to take to get there the just word arbitrary springs to mind. Don't yes. work for me. Like the walkie-talkie doesn't work, so the band can't play. Well, they're 15 feet away. Can't you just walk over there and tell them to start? So the whole plan goes wrong, which makes the last 45 minutes of, that I've watched completely pointless. Well, we did all this before; it didn't work. Let's rethink it again, but with different yes. people. But the plan went wrong because the person who predicted it actually the interpreter. <laughs> and the interpreter is the only person who can give the you know exact plans for the eagle to land. The phrase winging it comes to mind. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what to Literally say. I, I hate eagle. this movie. I think it was the worst movie I saw that year. That's just that's me. I, I, I totally I just think... see where you're coming from, Jay. I do, and I actually... I mean, you sort of moved me over a little bit. Like, I, I kind of get where you're coming from, but I know I can't. Fantastic situations call for giant leaps of logic, and when you place those situations into a semi-real-world situation, they play out as ridiculous. Why can't and they, I, I, I like that. Why can't they just explain it? Like, Star Wars is a... You know, anything really fantastical, like you said, Narnia... The, what, how does the how does we can make rocks float? Well, there's this thing called the force, and uh, you know that's pretty ridiculous. But somehow the way that it's explained and the way that it's okay now it now imagine sense. the force in Star Wars, and picture the force nowadays, and two guys trying to explain how they you know the force works over a cell phone. You know, in in like as though they're trying to exactly. talk to each other over the phone of you know how to hook their their speakers up. Exactly, I mean, that's it would be that's what it is for me. It's the the humor of that situation of you know two guys talking about something as out out of this world as that in an, uh, a normal setting. Andrew, I find it fascinating that you had such a problem with uh, Lady in the Water, yet um, you thoroughly embraced Lars and the Real Girl, which is really the same concept. And, and I'm not doing this to knock you or, or call you out or anything, but it's interesting that the, that 
when I brought up all those other films, this one's actually the most appropriate. You know you what? Have exactly. Buy-in. You have instant buy-in by the entire community, just like you do with the hotel complex here, of something so arbitrary and surreal, and yet everyone goes along with it. And maybe I, I didn't like Lars and the Real Girl. Re- really? I mean, because I couldn't buy into that. But no, no, no. I, I, I think it's not a good. In the water, how everyone instantly gets on board. No one even complains. That's exactly. Uh, that's a perfect comparison for me. What I was trying to get across is the idea of this: these normal people coming together in this ridiculous situation and going along with it to the extent where it's it's like the funeral scene in Lars and the Real Girl, for me. It's you know to the point where they're holding the, that funeral. That's what Lady in the Water is. It's people who are wrapped up in a ridiculous situation and completely going for it. And crossword puzzle. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just been told that he might be an interpreter. There's a girl in the shower, nude, who's apparently a narf. And he's just trying to do his best to, you know, decipher words in a puzzle. And it's the, it's the exact same thing as the town in Lars and the Real Girl going to the funeral of a, a doll. Like, that's what it is. It's, that's that's the, the, the humor in it. Well, I c- the kid reading the cereal boxes. That's what that is. I'm I'm in the same boat as Andrew because I really did buy into Lars and the Real Girl as well. Um, but well, I so think, did I. <laughs> yeah, but you liked Lady in the Water, whereas I didn't. <laughs> but the, I think the point with like Lars and the Real Girl, I got invested in the characters, and whereas Lady in the Water, there's nothing to, you know, the characters are kind of funny, but like I don't care what happens to any of them because they are so. Right. Kind of Not to mention, it's a professional psychologist that says, look, this is a troubled person, and we need to go with what he's saying. Let's just go with it and deal with it so that he can get better. Not, um, I want you to look in a... Bu- not this far-fetched. I don't think the comparison is there at all. It, it, you know, If a doctor comes up to me and says, look, this guy is really troubled. Um, you know, She thinks she's going to be picked up by an eagle. And there's critters in the, you know, all that stuff. But you need to go along with it. Just play along. <laughs> I, I, I could I could do that. I'd be like, all right. Well, that if somebody came up to me and said, <laughs> and just said this, like my landlord right now, if he knocked on my door and said, okay, look, this girl jumped out of the pool. And I, you know, it just, uh, I know I'm going, obviously, but. Yeah, but the, it's not the logic that's the same. It's the humor. It's the, the, the humor of watching these people at this funeral is the same as watching this guy trying to do okay. to figure out what okay. it might mean. I mean, they're two different movies. There's still a leap of logic. You can't watch Spider-Man without believing that being bitten by a radioactive spider makes you into a spider. Like, there's, you know... Well, it, here we go. Here's the theme go. of Movie Club Podcast episode number four. If there's a... See, and we're going to get into this in funny games, too. It's suspension of disbelief. And there's just not enough cards in Lady in the Water for most of us to suspend disbelief to the point where we can enjoy, appreciate, go along with the movie. And I think you like it precisely. And and this is going to be, this is the same thing with funny games. This is the make or break point in funny games too. That you can like it precisely because the director constantly calls out the fact that he does not want you to suspend disbelief. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to... Henneke's an art director, and M. Night is a mainstream 
you know, it's a different audience, and I, and I think M. Night got broken in half because of who he is for doing this, and, you know, that was maybe miscalculated on his point. But I guess I can see it on some level that it was ambitious enough to do it, even though the, the ambition was there, the execution was faulty on almost all levels. Marina, go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, you, were gonna yeah. def- you should defend Lars and the real girl. <laughs> Hijack well, the conversation. Well, it's not that. It's that I I can suspend my disbelief. I can leave it at the door. But the fact that one, there isn't one character that I like, or that I can fall behind. Two, the story that you want me to buy into, I I don't like it. I just none of it. I don't care that it doesn't make sense. It's just it it doesn't appeal to me in any way. At all, it's not that I don't. Ha- I don't. I don't care. I don't have to buy into it, but I need to, like you know, have some connection to it. And I just don't. I laugh through the whole thing. Right. It's like there's freaking monkeys in the trees, and this thing that looks like grass, but it looks like a a wolf. And I, I don't know. It just none of it made sense to me. Like I was happy with the characters. You know, they're they're. I. I that's why I think I like the beginning of the movie because the setup I thought was great of all of these various groups of people and the fact that they come together fabulous and yeah you know I even like some of these you know weird parts for like the kid reading the cereal boxes but I just the fantastical story just didn't do anything for me yeah fair enough and I I think Um, that I mean just by saying that you know people didn't like it because it's M. Night Shyamalan I'm not entirely sure I buy that because I actually like M. Night Shyamalan's other movies for the most part I agree, I'm the same. I don't, you know, if this had been somebody I really respect, like let's say it was the exact same movie, but it was Steven Soderbergh or Michelle Gondry, I would have hated it just as, I would have just been like, what are you thinking, man? Why are you destroying your reputation by making this movie? Okay, I was just going to say, did you like it when it was called Kung Fu Hustle? Uh, Because there's a certain scene in Kung Fu Hustle when the bad guys come to town and you've had the same idea of the roll call of the entire apartment complex and you see everyone right you know they're just mundane people you've got the 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 female landlord you got the uh, the guy that everyone has carry around the flower sacks or whatever but then when the bad guys come to town when something when some conflict enters it everyone steps up and fulfills their role and they're all kind of you know, they all have their role in, in the thing. Now, the movie goes on from there, but in Kung Fu Hustle, everyone stands up, well, I am Ringman, and I am, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this super fighter, and, and then they just, they all do their duty, mm-hmm. is almost like everyone discovering their purpose in... Now, admittedly, in both films, they're clunky, but Stephen Chow's film is designed to be goofy like that, and, and it yeah. wants to be goofy like that. The, and maybe that's the main problem with, with Lady in the Water, is that it does not let the viewer be comfortable with what the intentions of the film are. If there's one thing that's confusing, other than the arbitrariness of the plot, is you have no way... There's some sort of unconscious connection when you're watching a movie of how it's going to go and how you're supposed to take it, and there's no lifelines in Lady in the Water for all, for all the familiar elements, you know, the fantasy world, the, the people huh? coming together... The way it's told, there's no lifelines to hang on to. That that makes people very uncomfortable, and that fuels people not being able to put their finger like or dislike a movie. Well, I, I'll tell you, when, when certain moments pop up that everyone says they laughed at, 
I laughed at too, but afterwards I was like, that's, I, I like that. <laughs> like, I, I would laugh at it and, and in the way that I would laugh if in the middle of a, like the frogs in Magnolia. Same thing, it, you know, where it's like, that's awesome. He had the balls to drop frogs on this three-hour drama. It's another make-or-break moment in a movie that, mm-hmm. that has people either going gaga for the film or storming out of the theater angry. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Lady in the Water for me was frogs for the entire movie. It would be you know a frog every twenty minutes. <laughs> they forgot to add the melodrama. Yeah. Um, so I, I I don't know. I, I just thought you know it was uh, stuff that does take you out of the movie a bit, and you know there is the the fourth wall stuff, and I can't say I I actually wasn't a big fan of that. Um, the the only the time that I didn't mind it was when he was asking the film critic for help, and I thought, okay, the film critic is there as another sort of personality type that is a tool for a certain reason, um, like a puzzle solver, and yeah, he the wrong wrote, tool again, right? And he, um, but you know, once you get in the hallway scene, I could have gone without that, but um, yeah, I mean, this was uh, just a weird kind of. Uh, experience for me i mean i didn't expect it to be how it was at all as exotic as it ended up well yeah um we should i kind of unless does anybody have anything really um more that they want to express about it i'd like to i know kurt you hate this but i i'd be curious to just sort of get uh a star rating from people on this one i mean obviously marina and i it's pretty obvious where we're coming from like out of five stars jay what would you what would you rate this uh, four. Okay. At Kurt? Um, I'd give it a one and a half. Wow, okay. And Sean? I'm trying to think. I know we reviewed it. I think I gave it one out of four at the time, so what would that be? Okay. I guess one and a half as well. Yeah, yeah. And I would say I'm half a star, maybe one. Just Ditto. For, yeah, yeah. So, um... Why am I always right? <laughs> Doesn't it suck? Somebody's got to do it, right? I know. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's just kind of move on here. The, now, the second movie that we're doing, uh, talking about, is Michael Haneke. I'm not sure how to say it. Haneke, uh, his Funny Games film. Which, is, funny enough, I think, I don't know if it's later this month or maybe sometime in February where the um, the 10-year remake is actually coming out. Uh, March. With, March. Okay, thank you. With the same director, which is um, pretty interesting, I think. So, yeah, I'm glad I had an excuse to check this out for this show. Um, I guess I can sort of set this one up. It's we're, Again, we're assuming you, the listener, have seen the movie. Um, but basically, it's a, a, a family. Uh, my, uh, husband and wife and their son is out at their, their lake house, which is sort of secluded, and one day, a couple of young gentlemen show up to borrow some eggs, and it turns into them basically holding the family hostage and torturing them. and Well, not torturing them, but definitely antagonizing them and uh, ultimately killing them. So uh, that's, that's basically it. Uh, does anyone have any initial thoughts? on? Do you like the movie? Can, or? can I just start with one thing? Yes. The, yes. You know how sometimes... Um, something will be so uh 
you like that you know i don't know if you, you see someone wearing an outfit you're like oh that's me and or like in my case if i see a film and i see something uh that comes across a certain way and i think that's exactly how i would do that mm-hmm. it, like that meshes 100 percent with my taste <laughs> where are you going it would with be, this Jay? <laughs> <laughs> it would be the way they kill everyone no um <laughs> <laughs> it would be the opening titles. The opening titles are me. Like the 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 bold titles and the music they play is awesome. Are you like kidding as soon me? as they That's the kind of music now, you listen to? No, no, but the to go from it, it reminded me of the opening titles of Gummo where, you know, suddenly there's just cuts to a black screen. There's like you know, really obnoxious metal music and gummo with an upside down cross, and it's just in your face, and you know it slaps you across the face. And the fact that you know, well, I'll set it up that the scene starts as a very kind of Kubrick sort of The Shining. It's basically the opening of The Shining, and uh, we we eventually it's you know an overhead shot of a car weaving through uh, some I guess wooded areas and canyons and whatnot, and uh, we cut into the car. And they're listening to classical music and playing this game of like guess the song or guess the artist. Or operas. Yeah, and uh, and you know eventually we see the finger, this very uh, op- yeah, and then suddenly the music cuts and in giant red letters the title "Funny Games" comes up as this like total uh, power violence music is playing over the top. And we just see the family's individual faces driving as you're listening to this obnoxious music and equally obnoxious titles cover the entire screen. And that mm-hmm. was awesome. And it's a beautiful piece of music. Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> because that music, the, the death metal uh, soundtrack, uh, actually the film catches back up to that. Now, yeah. yeah, I like that. I find it impossible to go to funny games pure because Mm -hmm. all the posters, the DVD sleeves, everything clearly tells you that the title is meant to be ironic. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, the, the, the structure at the beginning, the opening credit sequence, or at least the titles and the music selection clearly states that. But the beauty of funny games is that then the director backs off from that for 20 solid minutes. He gives you that piece to say, here's what to expect. And this is what the movie does again and again, and it's m- my favorite part about the movie, is that he rubs your nose in the fact that it's a movie or that he can pass information along to you that takes you out of the movie and then uses every filmmaking technique, quite often in admirable restraint, to bring you back into the movie before having someone look at the camera or say something clearly and rip you back out. And the fact that he does this is, you know, the funny game that he's playing with the audience. I mean, the the real torture is not to the family. That happens to the family. is actually done off screen. Uh, the real torture, of course, is to the audience. And, of course, this is not a crowd-pleasing movie. Many people get offended watching this movie because they don't expect their movie to rub their nose in the filmmaker's thesis over the course of the movie. But I actually, for, I don't know, for being a film nut and a structural 
and an editing and, a, and, a, and an overall how do you construct, how do you play with suspension of disbelief and how do you play with audience emotions. I think it's a really beautiful case of how to mess with your audience, yet keep them coming back. Well, I can say I, I actually was offended to a degree with the movie, uh, but not because of any sort of uh, uh, violence or, or, or whatever. Um, but I'll get to that. Let's start, you know, with some uh, Wait a minute, a movie offended you? A little bit. <laughs> what? Hey, just for fun, did anybody... This is the first time I ever saw this movie. Was this anybody else's first time seeing this? Yeah, it was my, first, my time. first time. Okay. Mine as well. Oh, okay, so Kurt's the only one who's seen it before. All right, continue, Jay. I was just curious. Um, there... Okay, the... The movie's been explained what it's about. I mean, we, like you said, it, it's, it plays pretty straight, and then we get these guys coming in, and, and uh, basically, it, th- this movie is very Kubrick. I mean, right down to the titles. The titles are Stanley Kubrick's titles. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, the guys coming in in white. The is, analytical distancing. Yeah, there's a clockwork orange. Yeah. I would argue that it's equally Hitchcock, though, because... Yeah, the, the the manipulation of of suspense and expectation and the bomb that never quite goes off. And when the bomb does go off, it goes off off camera, yeah. which mm-hmm. is so Hitchcock. And yeah, it's an interesting blend in, from that point of view. Now, I I really like the movie, but there were there were two points that I had a problem with. Um, probably about an hour in, maybe I. Uh, there's a there is a breaking of the the you know he, he, the characters look at the camera one character in specific winks. Uh, winks at the camera that I I was like oh that's weird and you know you can almost think like who is he winking at is he actually winking at me or yeah or what? the first time it happens you're like huh did I just see that did that yeah. just happen and now I think I would have been fine with that just that leave it at that wink um, for me. The, the continuation of that kind of bothered me where there's one point when they're playing this game and the, the husband and wife are on a couch I think the kid's on the couch too and uh, they're pointing the gun and you know going to do that counting game to see who they want to shoot and the character turns to the camera and, and basically says who do you want to win or yeah. who, who are you rooting for uh, but the way he says it is very, very condescending. Like it, it's a very, you know, you're watching something violent. How dare you? You know, you're 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 rooting for someone right now. And I I know his intent is to get you to root for someone, and then call you on it. But I don't think rooting for someone is bad. Uh, and, and so for me, when he does that. He's being a little too clever for me, and uh, offensive. Like I don't know if anyone else feels that way. And and then the second part, which is the remote. I know what he's trying to do there, and I, I think it worked in that. Um, basically, a, a spoiler alert. We've had a spoiler alert on the show at the beginning, but it's all spoiler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. One of the main bad guys gets blown away by the wife, and then the other guy frantically searches for the remote, pauses it, and rewinds it. Now, I did like the fact that just when you thought 
tides have turned, you're back in re, right back in that position in an unfair advantage for you Which know that he, character. He does numerous times right. throughout the movie. So I, I kind of like that, but the remote thing just was very. It, it reminded me of something I would see in a film school student's movie. You know that that it was very gimmicky. Fact I liked like that he, what he was doing, but to get to that, I didn't buy it. Like as soon as he picked up the remote, I was like, please don't tell me the movie's gonna pause, and it paused and rewinded itself. I'm like, I know what he's doing here. But just watching the movie I'm watching pause and rewind was a little too. So, but he's he's messing with you. And I know you he's and you messing didn't like with it. me. <laughs> I know he's messing with me. So, and I liked the final result that yeah. the, the bad guy was back. You've just been cheated of whatever you know, sort of like yeehaw. You've just yeah. been cheated of that. Yeah. But the way he did that just was too easy. It was too easy to just have him pick up a remote and rewind it. And the remote itself to me is a bad sort of representation of television violence and it, it just reminds me of a, like a kind of a right wing sort of thing. No, that's 100% I, I think you're on the wrong side. Um, the remote is entirely, the object of the remote is massively intended because it is the tool with which you browse and choose what to watch and the film calls you on the fact that you're even watching this film. Uh, or Which I don't like. Like it, <laughs> and there's a, there's a beautiful scene. There's a there's a couple of fantastic long takes in the film, but one in particular is one where all the characters are in different rooms, and you just see the main, uh, or sorry, the, the the more heavy set bad guy flipping through the television, and the three things he watches on the TV. Uh, the first one is um, uh, stock car racing, which most people watch. Not everyone, of course, but a lot of people turn into stock car racing entirely to watch the accident, which right. is bizarre. The second one is he's watching news footage of, like, a hurricane destroying a village. No value in and of itself. You are not getting information. You are not getting anything from watching a hurricane on television other than the visceral thrill of watching someone's life dwelling or, you know, whatever, being washed away by nature. Like, the visceral thrill of violence. And the third thing, maybe it's just two. I, if there's a third thing, I can't remember it. But that is driven by the remote, which is also the fourth wall break, is driven by the remote. I actually don't think it's film student 101, although I can see how you can think that. I think it's, it's very um, well thought out that, that, that he's doing that. Um, I, I don't know. As soon as he picked up the remote, I kind of knew what was, was going to happen. Yeah. I didn't expect it to happen. And not that I didn't see it coming out of nowhere. I just didn't expect him to go there. And uh, like I said, I like the end result of that. I like the fact that the character that he gave it away yeah. and let you know that and he is capable of taking it yeah, away. Yeah, and I like that. But the way it happened was just cheap to me. And, but that wasn't even the thing I had the major problem with. It was more what I said previous, where he turns and says, who do you want to see win or whatever? He, I, I don't remember the exact line. It's like, you, you could say well, it's hypocritical, but then, of course, he will say, well, that's the whole point. You know, it's all academic, and it's well, all yeah, just too I, analytical. And I do kind of see your point. Like, I kind of had a little bit of a reaction to that, and... And yeah, I was kind of thinking like, okay, this is 
getting a little highbrow pretentious, but I actually really liked the rewind scene, and I'll tell you why. I, as I was watching this movie, I kept thinking of Hostel specifically. I mean, there's a lot of the torture porn movies that have been out lately, but I kept thinking of Hostel because in that movie, through this whole thing, and you just, as a, as a viewer, you're getting totally beaten up, and then at the end you get vindicated, and that makes it all okay. Man on fire. And, yeah, and, like, so I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, hmm, okay. I bet, you know, something's going to happen at the end. Like, I hope something's going to happen at the end, and I'm going to feel better at the end of this movie because he's really messing with me here. And then when he did that, and I was like, okay, so that's not, <laughs> I'm not going to get anything. And he just, you know, threw it in my face. And I kind of thought, yeah, okay, that was... You got yeah, but I, I would have gotten the same thing if he removed the gimmick of the rewinding and just had the family die. I would have gotten the same thing. I would have seen what yeah. he's saying. But you wouldn't get the element of... The constant point that he's trying to make is that you should be paying attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> and he constantly comes out and says, I'm the man behind the curtain, but I'm going to let you know again and again that not only am I there, but I can bring you back into the story by a couple simple... It's just a visual way of calling attention to how this... You know how film is is uh, is is so easily easily manipulative, and that violence. There's something about on-screen violence that's um, that's even more so. Uh, and and I I, I kind of like that. I I like that quite a bit. That that, that he not only because because it's working. Um, Lars von Trier does this all the time, uh, particularly with Dancer in the Dark, where he just keeps layering and layering and layering tragedy to the point where it's ludicrous but somehow he manages to keep pulling me back in and I hate him for it but at the same time I love him for it because he he's somehow saying how much can you really carry here because I'm going to keep piling it on and Lady in the Water is the same thing I don't know why Lady in the Water me when funny games because they're, they're very similar films <laughs> if maybe the first time that they've ever been brought up <laughs> as being similar but in in some of the if you like fun intent. games, <laughs> <laughs> some of the oddball intent uh, is uh, is definitely there, and the fact that he has all the normal filmmaking techniques and like there's a scene where they're fixing this boat, and you know they need a knife to open something or whatever, and I mean like any good Hitchcock film, the camera shows this action, shows the knife, shows the thing, then the movie catches back up to the boat, you see the knife. And boom, it's completely arbitrary. The knife is... <laughs> the, he's like, I, I've teased you, and I, I've given you all this foreshadowing <laughs> setup, and I've just taken it all away because I can. Yeah, it's a bit assholish. And uh, I but, liked all that stuff. I mean, just the... It was very heavy in its morality. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of in Toronto when some animal rights people skinned a cat alive and videotaped it to show how horrible animal abuse is. And that hypo hypocrisy, it, it's there. Even if you want to say, I know the hypocrisy is there, but that's the whole point. Like, it's like, I, I know when I'm watching that, this movie, I, I know what I'm watching. I know, I, I know when I watch all of my PVR episode of Cops that <laughs> I'm watching dirt. But, you, you know, just let me watch it it's it's a, like a libertarian libertarian kind of point of view i guess it's like 
you know, you don't have to remind me. I, I think the audience that is watching funny games, for the most part, maybe I'm wrong, would kind of realize that what they're watching is horrific. Yeah, um, well, I, one thing I was going to say, too... Um, it's just condescending to a point. To a point. Yeah, I can see that. Totally. And being a horror fan, I mean... See, but I think, well, I don't know. To me, it was interesting because, like, like this is now getting remade. But I, there was a point where I was kind of thinking, you know, like, th I would never see a movie like this, you know, released in the U.S. Like, this just, it kind of has that European art house feel because well, of the fact that maybe, it's going for that kind of... Maybe one of the characters in the remake will turn to the screen and be like, you're an idiot for paying money to see my own remake. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm curious, actually, to the, to the remake. One, I think the remake is partially exists... Well, first off, when Funny Games came out in 97, it was almost like prescient to the eight years later torture porn phenomenon. It was like the, the, the black satirical answer to torture porn eight years before the genre was even labeled. I mean, there have been movies like that for years, but the fact that it's the answer, and I think Henneke may have jumped on the fact. Henneke is, yeah, he, he has a, he seems to have this trickster element to a lot of his films, and it almost seems like, well, I just released Cachet, or Hidden, in 2005, and it was a, actually a very large success in the U.S., and then there's all this violence right now in the U.S., and now is the only chance I'm going to be able to foist funny games on an American audience. And I wonder if he's advertising it as practically, at least with the trailers, a shot-by-shot -shot remake. But I'm wondering if he's going to do something. I, I, I'll be curious. It's, it's playing this week or next week in, in uh, Sundance. It'll be to, um, to look and, and, and look at spoilers to see if it literally is a shot-by-shot. -shot. He's just doing what a lot of foreign filmmakers do. No one in the U.S. will see my movie if it's not in English and just remaking it. Or if he has something new to say. With Haneke, I would have to imagine he has something new to say and that he, this whole shot-by-shot -shot thing is an elaborate left hand doing something so that he can do something with the right hand. And I think it's interesting that he's doing this. But, uh, yeah... Usually, when a foreign filmmakers remake their own films for an American audience, like say, uh, was it George Sluzier uh, remade *The Vanishing* and yeah. totally wrecked it because they changed the ending. Now, I can't imagine Henneke is possibly going to change the ending. It's kind of the point—the fact that the ending is the opposite of what you should get and the opposite yeah. of what you want—and and and they make it very cyclical and, and whatever. There's no one in this case, but no one is going to see this in the U.S. No. Despite it's like no one went and saw Dogville when it came out. It's just not. Despite the fact that Naomi Watts is in there, um, it just isn't. It isn't. Unless so. they market it, market it as torture porn, maybe. <laughs> I have no idea, but the teenage market that doesn't want that. Anyway, I, we shouldn't be hogging it too much on on this end of things. Is there uh, uh, any commentary from uh, Vancouver or Minneapolis? Vancouver liked it. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> I say, um, I hope it's not a shot-for-shot shot remake. Cause I'm not sure I want to see one, uh, to be completely honest. I don't think it's as effective the second time. 
I've only seen it the one time, and at this point, I need a break between now and the next time I see it to get any more out of it. And the fact that I knew as much as I did, I think, took away from my enjoyment of it the first time I saw it. So I'm not sure I'm ready for version two, if it's exactly the same, even with different actors. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed it. And I like the fact that he doesn't uh, hide the fact that he's in control. And he keeps reminding you of that, and I like that. Um, yeah, I actually liked it too. And I've, I was, I'm sort of torn on the, as far as the remake goes. I don't know. Like, I don't want it to be a shot-for-shot remake either. But I hope they don't change the ending and the basic premise of the movie. And when I say the premise, I mean like, I, I think it's not so much that he's in control, Michael Haneke. I think it's more like the characters are in control, no matter no matter what happens in this movie, these guys, like, when they break the fourth wall, which I didn't like that much, by the way, but when they ask the audience, you know, who are you siding with or who are you going to root for? or who? I think the question was, we're making a bet here. Who are you going to bet on? And I think as soon as he did that, I knew that the bad guys were going to win. I just had this feeling. And I, I like that. They were... There's nothing that can be done here. And as soon as he rewound it, which, by the way, I thought something was wrong with my DVD player for just a second because it, like, did pause. And I thought, oh, okay, that's the layer break in the DVD, right? And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it rewound a little bit. And I'm like, oh, shit, my DVD is scratched. <laughs> and then I <laughs> figured it out. But I, I, I like the idea that they're actually the directors of the movie, not Michael Haneke in, in, in sort of kind of a way like that. Because they even... They look at the. There's a one other instance where they break the fourth wall and actually discuss plot and how a movie is supposed to work and how they. I think they discuss it on the boat at one point too, towards the end. And they're like actually the filmmakers, and um, I just sort of like that. And um, I have a lot of problems with the movie movie. on a on a superficial level. Other things that I can mention later, but as far as the sort of point of the movie. I, I like it a lot, and I hope they don't change that for an American audience that won't get it. I can mention a couple things I didn't really care about the movie, and like I said, it's more on the just superficial aspects, and that would be, I think it was mentioned briefly in the beginning, uh, is the suspension of disbelief. And, you know, I put myself... In this kind of a movie, it's the kind of movie where you sort of put yourself in the role of the family, like, what would I do in this situation? And I was so irked by so many things that that happened. Um, you know, once once the real drama started to unfold or the horror or whatever, um, the phone doesn't work. Yeah. Um, that's the only phone you've got? Really? Yeah. It is a mobile? Um, you don't know the, the number for the police? Uh, Wait, this is like a summer home, right? And that was the, actually, that was the other thing. Maybe, uh, where is this take place? Germany? Yeah, uh, I believe, no. I, the the filmmaker is uh, Austrian. The uh, the film I thought took place in France, and the uh, um, uh, but well, whatever. They still have the, the European version of nine one one. They have three one one. Hoity toity, upper class French, right? Right, but uh, yeah, it kind of struck me as well. Maybe they don't have nine one one there. I don't know. A lot of no, those things do. that you sorry to cut you off, but some of those things you're mentioning, I kind of like wrote them off as oh, this is a different country, so I'll just kind of go with it. Yeah, I I mean, ultimately, you have to just go with it. But that was just, like, a couple of things. Um, well, that's generally happens when your sense of 
disbelief, your suspension of disbelief is cracked, mm-hmm. then you start to actually notice nitpicks. I, 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 I rarely nitpick, even, even, on, even if on some level I can see problems, if I'm right into a movie, I, I, all nitpicks are forgiven. If, if yeah. the movie has lost me, all nitpicks are fair game, and, mm-hmm. I, and I can go endlessly on how much this or that or that annoyed me. But I, those same problems could exist in a movie. And they are they are completely forgiven. I, I can't explain the logic of that. That's just that that is how suspension of disbelief works. Right, and I get that. And I, I can suspend my disbelief for one or two things, but when they keep happening and again the film didn't lose me. I, I for the most part I guess I liked it. Um but there was just all these things that like he gets hit in the knee with a uh with the the, the golf, golf club, club. thing. Golf you. club. And I mean he's like an invalid, like he can barely move and then after the kid's shot and after the people leave all of a sudden he's sort of hobbling around and, and moving and again and that bugged me um and then you know the family sitting around and doing nothing for not the family the husband and the wife after the bad guys have left i mean they putter i realize they're kind of in a state of shock but they putter around and ditz around and do this and do that it's like you know go go get, get out and Wow, I see. Well, now you're at a distance removed, but again, when when I was into the movie and I'm watching the movie, and that it is a beautiful like 12 minute unbroken shot where they untie themselves, like that's a single static. I think the whole thing is lit by a single lamp, and uh, it's a beautiful shot. And and of course, their their kid was just killed, which was a pretty right, uh, right, nasty right, thing nasty to do things. on the filmmaker's part, is to actually kill the kid first. Just like the dog, anything that inconveniences the, you know, the the next level of flow of the story, he just conveniently gets rid of. Um, mm, this is something that I would have a problem in a normal movie, but with the way Funny Games is structured, the like guy I usually had—that's what I called my screenplay problem. When things happen in service of the screenplay continuing, uh, you know, for that reason. Funny Games, of course, does that with all the full intention there because it's kind of the point. Um, well, that's you can another say thing. That's actually. cheap, or you can say I, 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 there's that's, the scene. I don't know, but uh, the scene where he's like the one of the bad guys is in the other room in the kitchen making a sandwich. Meanwhile, we don't get to see what's going on. You can hear confusion and a gunshot and something. Call me sick or whatever, but I sort of wanted to see what was going on in there. Oh, but you were Although, you wanted to know. Although he's not, I like not showing you because you wanted to know. Yeah, yeah right, I, exactly. I but I liked how it too. came over, and then you see that the kid is the one that was killed, and I was like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." I didn't expect that. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, and I think uh, at the same time I was frustrated. Just threw his hands in the air. <laughs> no, I well, didn't expect the kid to get shot. You know, in movies, that's not the person who person. he's the kid that makes it out alive or whatever. But <laughs> I like that. So, because I wasn't expecting it, but I didn't like the fact that I was so frustrated that I couldn't see what was going on. Instead, I'm watching a guy making a peanut butter sandwich. There's a scene on the couch when uh, his countdown of who he's going to shoot. This is later in the film when they know he's going to kill someone, um, and the husband says, "Just don't do anything. Don't play their game. It just it's pointless. They're going to do whatever they want to do, which is a." pretty good acknowledgement that the film is going to do whatever it wants to do. The filmmaker is going to do whatever he wants to do. And then that's another fourth wall break where the, the main charismatic bad guy turns to the camera and says, you can't do that. We're not up to feature film length yet. Meaning <laughs> right, that right. 
you know, as much as anyone would behave logically or, or would behave this way, or this is a elegant solution to the problem, you're, you're there to be entertained. And sometimes being frustrated or tantalized is part of the entertainment package. And I believe he's acknowledging that um, very clearly. See, I didn't like that line either. And none of that stuff was, even though it was major, it wasn't enough to make me dislike the movie. Like, right. I still really well, like the it's, movie. It's and a movie that benefits a lot more in hindsight, I think, than necessarily while you're watching it, because you're, you are being screwed around with while you're watching, and no one really likes that too much. Yeah, and I just, um, I could have done without a lot of that. I, th I think the wink would have been enough for me. It would have been like, you know, a, a wink to me, he's acknowledging me, and now everything that happens after this... I know is you know a, a wink to me, um, but I I I don't know. I just don't like uh, that sort of um, condescending academic approach. It just it's just weird because coming from him, it's artistic, but coming from like a congressman or something, it would be you know looked at completely different and or M. Night Shyamalan yeah <laughs> um, so, well I just to, to go back real quick to that remote scene though which you know I guess you didn't you didn't like how he did it but um, I, I would argue that for me like you could you could do that other ways like you could have like sort of like a, a brief glimmer of hope she's about to get away or something and then oh but no she doesn't because this guy is actually behind her or whatever something like that right but the way he did it so like she picked up the gun shot the guy it was so final it was like in my head that's it the guy's dead but wait a minute no he's not and it just completely erased that whole thing like i had never seen that done in a movie quite to that extent i have wayne's world one where Garth dies, find the movie and go, or and they do the Scooby Doo ending. Well, the, again, Wayne's World is very much loaded with fourth wall breaks, as many comedies are, and I'm Looney Tunes. Yeah, which Looney Tunes is a good, you know, comparison. This is basically a cartoon. I mean, they actually call each other Tom and Jerry and, and Beavis and Butthead. And yeah, there's there's many references to that. I mean, Looney Tunes is a great example. You're 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 watching this you know sort of expression of violence like a, a violence that has no impact on your life it's it's pure entertainment it's it's quick-witted it's it's whatever but it's also anvils dropping and crushing cute furry talking animals and 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 again like like duck amok is one of my favorite um looney tune episodes where you literally have a character fighting with the animator in mm -hmm. in the there, I think that Haneke is bringing this up. I mean, the famous quote from Haneke, well, the famous quote from Godard, you know, the, the, the French New Wave, one of the big names, the French New Wave filmmaker, when in the 60s, when cinema was, you know, at its peak in terms of art form, and it was, uh, it was much more talked about, and it was much more in the, you know, in the, it was just much more elevated than cinema is right now. Uh, Godard's famous quote was, cinema is truth at 24 frames a second. And Henneke's version of that quote, which he said, you know, in this context or that, is, no, cinema is lies at 24 frames a second. <laughs> and this movie is as 
visually articulates that as much as you possibly can. Almost, like you said, almost too much to the point where you go, okay, I'm not an idiot. You know, tone it back a bit. Just give me the wink. But no, I think he wants to go all the way with it. it maybe it's his own frustration. Obvious, most films in general are, right? You can argue whether or not it is a good thing, but that's what he does. Uh, and and the, the fact that you see three cycles of this film um, when they drive up, they see the two killers at their neighbors, and they don't understand the neighbors' behavior. Then they go through the entire ordeal, and then the movie ends with them setting up the other neighbors that also had an awkward encounter. I think that might be him saying that romantic comedies or, or, or um, certain types of action films, it's exactly the same film again and again and again. And you'll go and watch it just because there's different characters. And that beautifully ties in to his own remake that's coming out later where he's actually done this 10 years later and he's doing it again. Well, that's um, the conversation they're basically having in the boat at the very end. I, I think they're talking about alternate world lines and whatnot, which essentially is what they're going through is they're basically in an, uh, an uh, episode of Sliders <laughs> where every home they visit is slightly different from the last and they just do the same thing. Same thing with the eggs, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's just very high concept and sometimes that bugs me. It didn't bug me enough to dislike the movie, though. Uh, overall, I, I really enjoyed it and I don't have a problem saying I enjoy <laughs> exploitive films you know like I, I don't need uh, I spit on your grave to suddenly pause and you know tell me you realize what you're watching you realize that you're rooting for this raped woman to cut off this guy's dick <laughs> I mean I know that's why I watch films but um yeah I mean it'll be interesting to see the American version um I'm I'm guessing it'll I, like if it wasn't the same director, I would be questioning it a little bit, and I would guess it would be more like Click than it <laughs> would be like the original Funny Games. But the trailer for the American one actually blew me away, and uh, I'm I'm excited to see it. But I'm wondering if they almost if if that sort of gimmick of the uh, talking to the the audience and whatnot will be exploited a little more for the American version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, um, yeah, I, I guess overall I liked it enough. I'm more than enough to check out the, the remake and see what it is. Um, that lingering, I wanted to say one last thing, um, that lingering shot that Kurt was talking about after the kid is killed and the bad guys leave, it just focuses on them. Um, first of all, I knew Kurt was going to like it. And second of all, I liked it too. Like, I thought it was an awesome shot. But to me, it went on for too long. And and I, I get that it's supposed to go on for too long. I do, but it, it I think it's going to bother a lot of people. And it bothered me. It reminded me of that scene. I don't know if you guys have seen Gus Van Sant's Jerry. Um, there's a scene where... Matt Damon and Casey Affleck are walking and it focuses on their face for literally 15 minutes in silence as they walk and while this wasn't 15 minutes I did 
feel the need, although I didn't do it, to reach over and fast forward. Like, okay, I get it. They're in shock or whatever, but it, it bothered me. the character fast forwarded exactly or you realized we should have cut to where the bad guys were and they were like let's get to uh the movie again let's get back to the uh what's going on and fast forward no, it. better yet you would have had to watch the whole thing then he would have rewound it and you would have had to watch it again <laughs> <laughs> that i would have appreciated too that would have been hilarious well that's so, what he does in essence with yeah. the closing shot um no I, I i thought that that scene that long extended take was a way after jarring you with incredible fourth wall breaking I thought that long scene where he pulls the bad guys right out of the equation focuses on the humanity of these two people moving on after this tragedy even even though you know how artificial it is the fact that by the end of that 12 minute sequence I was fully back into movie mode again I, I just think that's quite masterful to, to it, it's like uh, you know um, Babe Ruth pointing to the blue Leecher home run. I mean, he he's he constantly is telling you what he's going to do, and he still manages to win me back every time. I I just that's why I love this film so much because he can say something on one hand and still have me eating out of the palm of his hand ten minutes later in the exact opposite way. Uh, I, and that is that's filmmaking in a nutshell. Or or. Um, I mean, I guess good filming, good good filmmaking, or good fiction filmmaking. I don't, I don't know. Um, I want, I want, li- I want film to be lies that tell me the truth about something, and that's what Funny Games does. I just wonder if his films. I've only seen two. I've I've seen Cachet and Funny Games, and I wonder if this trickster kind of thing is, you know, would get to the equivalent of going to see the Who in their heyday and expecting them to smash their instruments. I mean, if this is thing that could lean towards gimmick, we're uh, going to see an M Night Shyamalan movie and expecting a twist ending. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. And um, but I, I haven't seen enough of his films to really comment no. on that. So, um, but I, in watching his interviews, you know, he seems like the kind of guy that even if it was a gimmick, he would be making a comment about it being a gimmick by making it a gimmick. Yeah, yeah. He's I mean, he's, he, kind of. he could talk his way out of anything. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely interested in seeing more of his films. Well, let me wholly recommend uh, Time of the Wolf, which is a post-apocalyptic film. It actually would have dovetailed nicely in with, uh, <laughs> with our mm. previous Last Man on Earth and... Uh, uh, Escape from New York. It, it, it's an apocalypse film where it relentlessly strives to give you no information about. The, it, it focuses on such the human element of apocalypse means in the actual absolute right now that the apocalypse itself becomes rapidly irrelevant, and you never ever get over the course of the movie a, a shred of exposition as to what caused the collapse of society. You merely see. Uh, a, a family like it's the same as Funny Games. Uh, well, it's a it's a mother, a father, and two children uh, deal with the fact that society is gone. It's it's a good film. Hmm. All right. So, anybody have any last closing thoughts they wanted to mention on Funny Games? Marina, I know you didn't speak didn't get to say that much. Do you have anything last that you'd like to say? Not really. See it. <laughs> 
fair enough. That's about it. Yeah, <laughs> yep, I I would say see it too, definitely. And and for no other reason than if you're going to check out the uh, American version when it when it pops up here in a month or two, then you can kind of compare and contrast the two. So Really? Because I know a lot of people that say, now that I've seen the French one, German one, I'm not, um, that I, I don't want to see, or, or really? vice versa, people that say, well, if it's a shot-for-shot remake... Well, I don't yeah. want to sit through that kind of subject matter twice, so I'm just going to wait for the English one. No, I mean there's certain level of film geek that just wants, that just feels the need to compare. Yeah, uh, I don't but know how. I think that most people, intrigued. it's a one or the other thing, and since the French one are the, the is actually fairly difficult to find. But I honestly don't believe, even with the success of Cachet, that Funny Games is going to get much of a release beyond like the artiest of art house theaters. No, I don't know. Yeah, probably not. But I, I can't believe that after seeing this, you wouldn't be at least intrigued to see the same director do his same movie, oh, especially this particular movie. Like, <laughs> no just the way it works at this particular time. So anyway, yeah. So I guess you can uh, make your own choices on that. So um, yeah, I guess we can. Sort I just of hope the opening titles are are as good. Oh, oh, they'll be better. The poster I'm rocks. to see what song they use. I love the poster with Naomi Watts with the teardrop. I think the poster is awesome. Mm-hmm. So, um, so next month. Oh, here's this. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, it's quite are. prescient. This. Uh, do you see the the DVD cover slash poster on the uh, French version? It's very uh, Guantanamo. Uh, it's it's the kid just sitting oh, in a chair yeah. with the bag over his head. Yeah. yeah. There's another version of it though, right? It's like. The one that they have on uh, the the demonic poster with yeah. the guy and then the the um, image in his eye. That 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 poster, strangely enough, that photo bad. What looks like a bad Photoshop. The original poster yeah. actually creeps me out more than the, you know, post war on you know uh, war in Iraq, Guantanamo uh, imagery does. For some reason, that demonic poster <laughs> is disturbing. I just want to say, Andrew. It- if you were disappointed in not getting to see that kid get shot, you should see John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 because you get to see a little girl get shot in the face through her ice cream cone. Sweet. <laughs> and I mean that with no pun intended. It is good. <laughs> um, well, you'll be dismayed to know that I've seen the remake of Precinct Assault on Precinct 13. And I guarantee there's no kid getting shot through no, an ice cream cone. I didn't even yeah. think it was that great. I'd lo- I'd, John Carpenter's the man, so... All right, yes. I'll check it out, Jay. Uh, all right, so what was I? Oh, yeah, next month, I think our plan is to watch Straw Dogs and uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Now, let's just pause for a second. Do you think that's going to be too much of a like double shot of depression and yeah, it is intensity? Yeah, pretty, yeah, we're having last-minute regrets do- here <laughs> live during recording. Yeah. I think Freddy we should fingered. change it to Cannibal Holocaust and Freddy got personally. <laughs> Freddy got yeah, fingered. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm all about that. As well. surreal as it sounds to say, let's swap out Peckinpah <laughs> and throw in Tom Green. I, there is a part of me that um, that thinks that there's actually something to talk about with Freddy got fingered. And I'm actually curious to see how many of us are on board with the film and how many people aren't. Because that's uh, it's one of those universal... 90s onward films that is raked over the coals. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you guys have all seen it. Have you seen it, Marina? No, but a little part of me just died. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know. I, bear with me, though. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it, so, yeah. Well, I'm interested to see which one people are going to like better, Cannibal Holocaust or Freddy Got Fingered. <laughs> um, Alright, so, not Straw Dogs, but Freddy Got Fingered and Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> Alright. You know how, how, how much credibility we have just lost, but... It'll definitely be fun. I mean, this was a great show. It does. It makes a lot more sense. So, check out both of those movies, uh, and then come back uh, next month in February sometime, so you'll be prepared. And stop by movieclubpodcast.com, and uh, definitely leave any thoughts you have on this show or any of the previous shows, and also don't forget to vote for Volume 6, which will be in March. You can go with a couple I don't know what the choices will be but uh, they'll be up there so feel free to vote on those and then leave some comments so um, yeah if anybody, unless anybody has any final thoughts I guess we're going to sign off nope alright I'm fine thanks, uh, I'm doing great thanks for listening to the movie club podcast we'll see you next month Jack never done Jack and you partner what's the news of the world Dick I don't say Dick Don of all the people you must be the tattler What are you afraid of? Failure. So am I. Has been. Has been. Has been implies failure. Not so. Has been's history. Has been. Was. Has been. Might again. <laughs>